When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now, we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the seventh ever Risk episode to appear in the world. It is from December 29, 2009, and it's called Spiritual Breakthroughs and Breakdowns. Oh, my baby, she's a risk taker, undercover deal maker, salt and pepper shaker, make a good man fall. Stays out all night, tell me that it's all right. Big hip, loose lips, and that ain't all. Shape my big risk mama. Big risk mama. Do what she wanna. Oh, big risk mama, come take a chance on me. Come and take a chance on Roosevelt Dime right there, makers of the finest voodoo Dixie acid country. They're at RooseveltDimeMusic.com and you are at risk, my friend. The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. We have an all-star lineup for you today. Behind me right now, you're hearing the Bo Keys dishing out some of that delicious Memphis soul for a particularly soulful episode of Risk. Our theme today is spiritual breakthroughs and breakdowns. So we're digging a little deeper today, folks. Oh, we'll have our laughs. But don't be surprised if you've accepted Xenu, ruler of the Galactic Confederacy, as your personal lord and savior by the time we're done, smart guy. Oh, speaking of smart guys, our first storyteller is one of the most brilliant 
and prolific comedy writers and performers I've ever known. Not only was he in The State and Reno 911, but he's worked on a ton of funny movies like Night at the Museum and Balls of Fury, and he's like a brother to me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ben Grant with a story we call That Old Time Religion. I think religious people are terrible, and, and I think that that stems that prejudice. And I'm sure that there are religious people who've done good. And then I think that list is about three people. And then I think everybody else religious is bad. And I think that stems from something that happened to me when I was in ninth grade, which is a terrible thing. I grew up going to these weird, southern, strange churches. Like I went to a snake handling church for about two months. Every month they, they make a big deal and they go out and they catch cottonmouths and the preacher picks up this cottonmouth and holds it up and preaches with this thing in his hand and, and preaches for a while with this thing in his hand. And cottonmouths are really very, very aggressive snakes. I went to that church a couple of times. And the one that I, the story is about is it was Faith Christian Fellowship and it was out in Farragut, Tennessee. The preacher's name was Terry Arnosky. And that church was bananas. They would speak in tongues Every week, at a part of the sermon, it would go into silent prayer, and Taranoski would preach, and everybody was praying silently, and he would start saying things like, Oh, holy, holy. Oh, thank you, Lord, thank you. Thank you for everything, Lord. And then he would start speaking in tongues. And when he started speaking in tongues, the whole congregation would follow suit. And, and everybody, you'd have 400 people all speaking in tongues. And it sounds like... I like a semen and I like a semen and everybody's doing their own version of that and they're shouting it and then the band will start to kick in and the rest of the congregation is dancing in a big giant circle around this big giant giant room and they're dancing around and speaking in tongues I spoke in tongues twice and I will say I was probably like seventh grade it was genuine I was not faking it I think that it's some kind of weird mass hypnosis, but it, I, I was not faking it at all. I, I spoke in tongues. I never did it in church again, but with him I did. Uh, and I think that this whole church was kind of rigged for that to be the case. I don't think that this place was dangerous, but I bet Jim Jones' church was a lot like this. People don't acknowledge that that sort of crazy peer pressure Self and group hypnosis is a really common thing. It's weird that Jim Jones has really only happened like that once or twice. You know, like it, it, you know, it's it's only happened it happened to Guyana and then those guys with the wearing the Nikes, you know, and then all the people in Texas who are, who are screwing the little girls and they all wear the little house in the prairie outfits. Like it happens every once in a while, but. I went to a lot of churches, and I think if any of these churches had had the preacher tell us to drink poison Kool-Aid, I think it might have happened at one out of five of them. I first started having conflicts with this idea of this church when uh, a faith healer came to the church. And he was up on stage, and he was praying, uh, and he was saying, okay, somebody out in the audience has something wrong with their hip. 
Uh, I don't know if it's an operation or just it's sore or there's an ailment, but the Lord does not want you to be in pain and come up here. And like an old guy got up and stood and walked to the front and, and he put his hands on this guy's head, the faith healer did, and prayed silently in his ear and then went bam and like didn't smack him on the head, but like pressed his head. And the guy, the old man, went down like a ton of bricks. And he had two big ushers behind him to catch him. And he went down and laid on the stage. And the, the, this preacher, this faith healer, did that to about 20 people. And I, at this time, in my family, there's this weird ankle uh, – I, I, my brother had it operated on, but it's like we have weak ankle bones – but my brother had just had a serious operation and had like rods put in his ankle and my ankle was starting to bother me. And so I was worried about it, but I think it was just psychosomatic. And this preacher says, uh, okay, somebody up here has something in their leg or their foot below the knee, something. And so my mom like was looking over and my mom said, get up there. That's you. You know, that's you. And like tears we running down her face, tears running down my face. I went up there and I went up and I stood on stage and I'm crying, and I think I'm crying because I'm like, it's emotional, and like everybody in the church is crying, and I was also, I think I kind of knew this was coming, I think. So this guy laid his hands on my head and prayed in front of the whole congregation, the whole congregation, 400 people are up there praying for you, and they're praying to heal you, and they're, they're speaking in tongues, and they're waving their hands in your direction, and they're praying to bring the Lord down into your ankle. And so this guy puts his hands on my head, starts praying and praying in tongues and then he pushes me and I didn't feel anything and I didn't I didn't pass out and I didn't do anything but I thought that was okay I, I thought like okay I'm not passing out but that doesn't mean it didn't work and then he puts his hand on my head again and presses me harder and and stands up and and praying in tongues and I and I'm like okay and I'm wondering do I go and sit down like what do I do and then he he puts his hands on my head and leans forward, praying in tongues. And as he's kind of waving his head, wavering it up and down and back and forth, as he's leaned into my head, he whispers in my ear, "Fall down." And so I did. And then I waited, like I was on the ground, and I was kind of waiting for the other people to get up on stage. And then the old woman kind of got up first, and then I kind of did what she did, which is she got up slowly on her hands and knees, and then stood up and like kind of waved her hands to God, and I, I did that. I didn't tell my mom what happened because I knew it would break her heart. At the time, I thought it was my fault that it didn't work, that God knew I didn't have faith. Uh, which at the time I think was was becoming true, but I think that was the point that I really started questioning religious people. I think religious people are terrible. current favorite piece of music anyone's done for us. We call it Glasswork. David Bux is responsible and extraordinary film composer. You can find him at earmarkmusic.com. Moving from that David to this one, 
David Ellis Dickerson is the author of the memoir House of Cards. You may have heard him on This American Life or The Moth. Just a sweetheart of a guy. Here he is at the Risk Live show. We call this In the Name of the Father. When I was 28 years old, I visited Tucson, my hometown, for the first time in about six years. And it had been a hot day. And I was, uh, on the last day of my visit, I was with my dad and we were going to go to a diner, a diner we'd been to years and years ago. And uh, I noticed my dad was wearing a cowboy hat. And I had started wearing cowboy boots. And I started thinking, oh, this is like a showdown. An Old West showdown. You know, we, we, we took one of these booths where the seats are exactly, you know, facing across from each other. We both ordered the Sprite. We both ordered the hamburger because my dad and I are very much alike. And my dad didn't know this, but we were at war. Uh, it was nothing against him. I was at war with all Christians. Uh, it was because I had been raised by him in my family as a Bible-believing Christian. And uh, I believed it so much that unlike the rest of my family, I decided I was going to be a pastor and a theologian. And I went to college to study the Bible. And six years later, I had this game I could play where if you open the Bible to any page, I can show you five things wrong with it. Uh, and I couldn't wait to do it. I lost my entire faith, but I had these new kind of, uh, this, this new ammunition that was ready to deploy at any time. Uh, and so I was sitting there with my dad waiting, waiting, waiting for something to happen. You know, I was just thinking, okay, just just mention the virgin birth. And I'll point out it's a mistranslation <laughs> from Isaiah, you know? <laughs> just just mention Second Peter. I'll point out it's a second century forgery. I can prove it, you know? Just, just, just mention salvation and I'll point out, oh, you think, what kind of a, a dumbass soteriology do you call that, you know? Um, and so I was sitting here waiting and what my dad did not know also, is that I was riding a wave of a victory. Because a couple days earlier, I had argued with my brother-in-law, and I had gotten him to back down. <laughs> it was just one stupid sentence in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a sentence where uh, it says the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites, let's say, it doesn't matter, and, um, and God makes the sun stand still for an entire day to give the Israelites time to recoup uh, and, and win the battle. And I sat there and I hammered at that and I said, do you really believe this, brother-in-law of mine? You know, do you really believe that God, who could have just gone, die, you know, he's then, then he says, oh, I'm going to freeze everything and I'm going to like make gravity not happen and I'm just going to, you know, do this just so one little sentence in this book can become true for all of time so that you can worship it. You really think that's the smartest thing God could do? And my brother-in-law actually backed down. He said, I wish it weren't in there, but what else can I do? <laughs> I got him to admit he doubted the Bible. It was a tiny, tiny victory, but I took it. And I looked at the clock, I remember, and it was five in the morning. And we had been arguing since 10. For me, that is a full working day. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, at that time I realized, this isn't about being right. You know, you don't argue for seven hours because of that. I was trying to save my family, you know, because I, at this point, 28 years old, I was a virgin. There is no betrayal 
like losing your faith after like trying to be a virgin because you think Jesus wants you to and then Jesus up and fucking leaves on you <laughs> I was like that's 10 years of my life I'm never getting back and I was looking I looked this whole evening I was looking at my brother-in-law and thinking there is no way you have a good sex life you know I know it because it's not in the Bible you know it's it's it, 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 and, and so I kept thinking if, if you would just listen to me you know I have this deal worked out I can save you all you have to do is listen to me and admit that everything you believe is wrong it's so simple uh, and uh, so I had gotten that one tiny little admission out of him that I tasted blood and I was ready for more so I was sitting there with my dad and we had ordered and we were trying to make small talk we hadn't talked in a while and I was waiting for my excuse and my dad said, uh, well, I, uh, I found a new church. My ears pricked up. I said, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really nice. I get to lead the music and worship. And that's really, really nice. Damn it. There's nothing about music. I can't. There's nothing biblical about that. I can't attack. Um, and then he said, and, uh, you know, I've been praying about it. And I, uh, I think I want to be a missionary. I thought I'd be a missionary. Uh, this opportunity has opened up. I thought, my dad is 65 years old. I thought, what do you want to be a missionary? Where? Where are you going to go? I said to my dad, and he said, oh, uh, Spain. And I flipped. That was it. But of course, how arrogant you conservative Christians are that you have to think, oh, we have to save the poor benighted Spanish. We have to save, <laughs> teach the Spaniards about Jesus, of course. Uh, and... Uh, and so I went off immediately. I talked about, you know, your model of salvation isn't even historical. It wasn't even taught anywhere until the 19th century. And, you know, and, and I, I went on about, about uh, oh, God, what was it? I had like three things ready to go in my mind. And my dad just kind of sat there and watched quietly. And, uh, and I, you know, I lacerated his entire premise. You know, that people needed saving, that maybe hell didn't exist, you know? And, uh, and maybe this entire premise, this dream he had, was misbegotten and a really, really, really bad idea. And uh, he paused for a second and he said to me, um, David, you know, I'm really proud of everything you have accomplished. And uh, I'm really glad that you enjoy learning all this stuff. Uh, but I gotta tell you, before I became a Christian, I was miserable. You know, I I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to divorce your wife, my uh, your mom. I was uh, staying away from home. And suddenly, as soon as he said that, I remembered. I was back. I was six years old again, and I remember driving from South Dakota in this in this big station wagon uh, to Tucson, Arizona, which is where we now live, and. Um, and staring at the back of my dad's head the whole way and he was driving one hand on the wheel and with another hand on a cigarette that was kind of hanging out the side of the car and halfway to Tucson where he had thrown everything that had destroyed his life behind him and he was going back home to, to, to start again he threw the cigarettes in the trash he never picked them up again and that was the start of his change and he told me you know when I first went to Grace Chapel, I was not convinced. And suddenly I remembered again, that's right, I was eight years old and I was at Grace Chapel and he took me there the first time. Grace Chapel is a charismatic church. 
That means they like raise their hands and they like lay oil, they put oil on people to heal them, and they, and they, they speak in tongues and they roll around on the floor sometimes. It's a little crazy. And my dad said, you know, when I first saw that, I was, I was thought, these people are nuts. What are they doing? But I kept coming back. Because I saw so much love in that room, and they cared for each other so much. And finally, after doing this for a month, I went home and I prayed, and I said, God, if I have to cut my own head off to be happy, I'll do it. And what I know, David, he said, is you've got all these facts about the Bible, the truth in my life is, I followed Jesus and the Lord gave me a family. And suddenly I remembered, I had this thought of what it would have been like if my parents had gotten divorced. Sure enough, my dad was ready to do it. I remember running across a notebook where they actually divided up their property and then dad had this conversion and said, no, forget it, we're sticking it out. And I remember thinking about my brother who, you know, listens to three hours of Rush Limbaugh every day. He's convinced I'm going to hell, but he gave me $200 and said, don't bother paying it back. And uh, suddenly I thought, like, I thought at the end of this conversation, we would come to a truce, you know? There would be an armistice, a uh, tie. What I hadn't expected was to lose everything completely. <laughs> I suddenly looked at myself from his point of view and realized, oh my God. I don't want everyone to be like me. Maybe, maybe you don't have to care as much as I do, you know? Maybe it can be like, well, like I'm a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but that doesn't mean I'm going to go to the mat defending the special effects, you know? And, and I, would, I would resent anyone who expected me to, and maybe that's what I was doing to him. Maybe religion can be like that, you know? Taking the best parts, ignoring the parts that aren't very helpful, and just moving forward without thinking about the rest. And what I said was, oh look, here comes the waitress. <laughs> and, and we got our hamburgers, and we got our Sprite, and we sat quietly and sipped and ate. And my dad didn't know this, but we were having communion. Thank you. This is Risk. For more David Ellis Dickerson, just Google the words greeting card emergency. And behind me again are the Bow Keys. You'll find them at scottbomar.com. By the way, if you're a musician and you want to hear your stuff on our show, write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. Coming up next in our little pilgrimage through spiritual breakthroughs and breakdowns, Elna Baker gets a handful of wang... But first, I gotta tell you, we need your help. If all our listeners gave just a little, we'd be all set to keep the stories coming. Donations of any amount are easily made with a couple of mouse clicks if you just visit the support us page at risk-show.com. We really do need it. And remember, donations to Risk are officially tax-deductible. Now, I mentioned Elna Baker, and she's about to take us on quite a journey here. Do any of you who were raised Catholic out there remember the children's record, High God? Hey God, how do you feel today? Same album had the song, And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch! All right, enough of my nonsense. Here's the wonderful Elna Baker with a brand new and much lovelier, 
Hi, God. So I was born Mormon, uh, raised Mormon, grew up uh, within the Mormon faith. And, you know, aside from the things that you're taught in church, I also think as a person, I was prone to having faith. And I think that's because I love the idea that there is a God and that there's this being up there that sort of witnesses to your life. And so in spite of myself still, if I see the moon and look up at it, my first reaction is to say, you know, hi, God. As a Mormon living in New York City for eight, nine years, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I um, also ended every relationship I was ever in with a guy because I didn't believe in having sex before marriage, and they didn't believe in that, and so then the relationship would end. And so at uh, 27, still single, still not in any real significant relationship, I decided, you know what? Maybe there's another way, and maybe I can take a break from being Mormon, and maybe I don't need God. And so I thought about it, and I had um, been in love, and the relationship had ended because of my religion. And I still thought about him, but he'd moved to Africa. We didn't speak anymore. And so I decided late one night to send essentially a non-drunken drunk email (laughs) And I wrote, uh, hey, Matt, I'm taking a trip to Africa, to South Africa, and he had moved to Zambia. And I was like, is Zambia close to South Africa? Because if it is, me and my girlfriends who I'm traveling with, we could just stop by on the way. I hope you're well. (laughs) XO Elna. You know, it couldn't have been a bigger lie. I didn't have a trip to South Africa on the horizon. But... Whatever, I sent the email, and even though it was a total lie, it was the most direct thing in my life I had ever done because I was going after what I wanted, no matter what it cost me. And so I opened my email the next morning, and I had an email from him, and they said, you know what, I'd love to see you. You and your girlfriends can come stay with me. And I read that, and I was like, oh, shit. I have to suddenly recruit female, more than one female friend to go to Africa with me, I actually managed to convince two female friends to go to Africa with me. Uh, So my girlfriends and I, we bought our tickets to to Africa. And uh, two months later, we flew to uh, Lusaka. Now, I had already arranged with uh, Matt that uh, my girlfriends and I would spend three days in Zanzibar, which is this tiny island off the coast of Africa. And then we would fly from there down to where he lived in Zambia. And uh, we arrive in Zanzibar again, no concept of what to do, where we are. And it just so happens that we meet the daughter of the president of Zanzibar. And immediately it's like we have the key to the whole city. And she takes us swimming with the dolphins. She takes us everywhere. And then we start talking about, you know, the different sort of cultural differences uh, that they have in Zanzibar. And she tells me about this wedding tradition that they have that a new bride, if, if she's a virgin, will be initiated into the world of sex uh, by um, meeting with this woman named Biki Dude. And Biki Dude is 113 years old, and she's a sex expert. And she initiates the bride into the world of sex through movement, dance, song, and a stick. 
And I'm like, what happens with the stick? And Natalia says, well, no one really knows. So I decide that Beaky Dude is the answer. And I'm like, we have got to meet Beaky Dude. So the next day, we travel to a small village in Africa, and I'm escorted into the hut of an 113-year-old sex expert. And I'm like, I'm going to ask her everything about sex, you know, from the taint to the balls. I'm, you know, I'm not holding back, you know. I'm just, what's a dirty Sanchez? You know, I don't know these things, but I want to. So we get into this, this little hut, and, you know, I'm ready to just get down and dirty. And then there's this tiny dinosaur-looking old lady sitting on the ground across from me. And it just doesn't really feel appropriate to say any of those things. So Natalia begins by translating, and she says, um, you know, she's a, uh, she's a virgin, and she wants you to teach her about sex. And Biki Dude nods, and she, she looks at me, and she's like, oh, yes, I can always tell the ones who have not been popped, is what Natalia translates. So then she, um, she says to me, uh, I can't do your ritual right now, but you can ask me one question, and I will answer it. And so I'm thinking, you know, what? What is the question? And so I say, uh, Biki Dude, I only want to get married once. I only want to be with one person, really. So how do you know if you found the right one? She sort of nods, and she's like, hmm. And she says, he may not be able to give you clothes. Uh, he may not give you a roof over your head. And sometimes, at night, when you go to bed, you will go to bed starving. But if you can do this together, you know, with a smile on each of your faces, then you know he is a good man. And I was like, that's not really what I was going for. <laughs> but it's funny, because it's that moment where you suddenly realize, you're like, as an American woman, I'm so typically, like, I'm like, oh, well, like, what are the top three qualities? Like, does he have a sense of humor? Like, you know, the things I'm used to analyzing, like, this woman's priorities are like, will he be able to feed me? Will he save me from the coup that's trying to burn down my village? And it was just this moment where you're looking at this woman, you're like, I am an asshole. And so I leave Biki Dude's hut with no, no further instruction or awareness. And we wake up in the morning, we fly to, to Zambia, and uh, Matt meets us at the airport. And, you know, this is the first time we've seen each other in years, and there's that familiarity, but then there's also the fact that you've both really changed. And it's not the same, but you know something's still there, but you don't know what it is. And um, we uh, go from there to his home, and it's just this tiny box. It's a really dire apartment. And he uh, has two beds, and he offers to sleep on the floor. So everyone goes to sleep, ever the impatient person that I am. I crawl down onto the floor, and I'm like, hi. Uh, I feel like we, you know, didn't really get to talk. And so I just thought we should talk now. And he's like, what's up with your life? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. It's a little different now. Um, I'm not Mormon anymore. And again, like I'd been thinking about these things. I'd been questioning them. But I had not really made a direct choice. So that when I said it, I surprised myself. And he was like, oh, oh that's, 
it's pretty big. I mean, that was a big part of who you were, was a Mormon. And I was like, yeah, not anymore. And then he says, he's like, oh, well, um, what do you do now? I mean, do you drink? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't drink. And he's like, oh, well, um, like, have you tried drugs? And I was like, oh, no, I wouldn't do that, no. And he was like, uh, have you had sex? Uh, I looked at him and I said, no, but I've done like other stuff, which is like the most unconvincing answer you can give. And I say, well, you know, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just thought, you know, I, you know, part of the reason things didn't work out between us was because of my faith. And I just thought I would let you know. And he, he nods his head and he's like, yeah, I mean, it, it is like a, a big shift, but it doesn't really make that much of a difference because I don't know I I kind of think you're still Mormon and I'm like oh gosh he's, he's calling my bluff and so I think okay I have to do something bold and I have to do it now and so in a completely out of character move I pounce on him and I just start kissing him and then I take my hand and I slide it down his pants and I grab onto his penis. And it really was as though I were saying like, would a Mormon be holding a penis? So then we're kissing and he's kissing me back and, and it's very a passionate moment, but I'm also like, I am holding a penis in my hand and I have no idea what to do with it. So for lack of knowing, I just sort of keep my hand there as though it's just sort of set on an armrest. And at first this is fine because we're still kissing, but then he just sort of stops kissing me and he says, uh, is this all right? And I take a deep breath and I'm like, honestly, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and he just grimaces and he takes my hand and he pulls it out from his pants and he's like, look, this is not really the perfect analogy, but this is all I can think of. A 14-year-old girl may think that she's ready to have sex, but you don't really want to be the guy that shows her how. Uh, and we're just at very different places in our life. And so I, with the little dignity I had left, said, okay, um, I understand. Uh, just, you know, promise me one thing. And he said, what? And I said, uh, when we wake up tomorrow, just don't let this be awkward. It proceeded to be one of the most excruciating in terms of your own ego trips of my life. I finally just decided to let go. And I woke up one morning and I went out on safari. And on the other side of the world, uh, you're so close to the equator there that the sun, literally, it's just huge. It's like fills the sky with this giant circle. And then you watch it on this perfectly flat horizon go down. And then you watch the moon immediately come up to take its place. And I remember as I was watching the sun go down and then the moon came up, it was this funny feeling of how I had traveled to the other side of the world with such uh, intention of letting go of God and of letting go of the person that I felt like I was to become something new, only to realize that even in that place, I would look up in the sky and still think, Hi, God.
Worm Burner. What they do is kick ass. Look them up at wormburnerband.com. Well, we have one more story for you folks. This one comes from yours truly. And we might as well just go ahead and call it Godspell. Uh, so... When the state, my comedy group, uh, broke up, uh, it was the beginning of what I call my belly of the whale years. Um, you know, in mythology, that is when the hero is going through like a purgatory-like experience, but is still alive. And I assume everyone goes through a dark night of the soul sort of experience at some point in life, but. Mine lasted 10 years. And if you spend like a decade like not knowing how to push your life forward, it could be that you're just being dramatic. <laughs> um, you know, Jonah and Pinocchio, these guys, they were out of there within like a paragraph. <laughs> So, just to back up a little, the state was together for nine years, because uh, we, we had met in college, and we were building, at that time, you know, toward the very end, we were building a big fan base uh, from our show on MTV, and we had uh, um, a book deal, a movie deal, a record deal, and this thing we were doing on CBS, and then all of a sudden, it was just all completely and totally gone. And we had had this mantra all through our time together that this wasn't about our individual careers. We were building the career of the state and it was going to be a Rolling Stones length <laughs> career. And I think other people like grabs somewhere in the back of their heads that that was a bit illusory, but I was just married to that idea. I just like was so grasping onto that idea that when the group broke up, I was baffled for years. I, I didn't know exactly how to be me on my own. Um, you know, uh, I couldn't seem to make an impression on agents and managers. And I wasn't sure what format of comedy I wanted to make my own, what my comedic voice should be. So I'd find myself, eventually, in these survival jobs where I'm making like $11 an hour. And people, my coworkers, keep coming up to me saying, Dude, weren't you in the state? I remember one time, I'm bartending at the Grammys, and Sarah McLaughlin comes up to get champagne from me, and she says, oh my god, what are you doing here? And I, I, I you know, didn't, couldn't think of anything to say, and she's right there with Aretha Franklin, and she turns to Aretha and she's like, oh, he's one of my very favorite comedians. And Aretha takes a look at me and she just says, mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I've always been a sucker for self-help books. Uh, you know, I, the titles on the shelves like, uh, Think and Grow Rich, Get Out of Your Own Way, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I just can't resist the fuckers. And the thing of it is, is that 
those when you can't resist those titles, what it shows is that you are craving uh, something outside yourself. That you believe that you don't have what it takes. Mm -hmm. What it takes is going to be found in this, you know, fifteen dollar and ninety five uh, cent book. <laughs> so one day I come upon this book called Conversations with God. Uh, it's a big bestseller, and this guy who wrote it, Neil. Donald Walsh. Uh, he was apparently homeless and bottomed out and all that sort of thing, and he angrily wrote a letter to God that was essentially saying, you know, what have I done to deserve this? And then he says, abruptly, the pen began moving on its own. Out came the words, do you really want an answer, or are you just venting? And Walsh says, I was not writing so much as taking dictation. Well, I thought this was great. <laughs> I loved this premise. What if you could have someone who had all the answers available to you at all times and they were no more complex than your ability to write with a pen? Now, I started doing it myself. But first, you should realize that I had something very unusual from my childhood, and that was a positive Catholic upbringing. <laughs> my parents called themselves liberal progressive Catholics, and you know, they were always into the guitar masses. They, uh, they, they sang Blowing in the Wind at my baptism. <laughs> And, and then they sent me to this Jesuit high school, and the Jesuits, you know, they, the, the Jesuit consulate, a lot of people don't know this, they put all the conservative Jesuits in New York and Los Angeles, and then they put the liberal ones in crazy-ass Rush Limbaugh towns like Cincinnati, Ohio. So I'm being taught by these Jesuits, and what they're teaching you is to come into religion class with arguments against what the church teaches so that you can compare and contrast and start to think for yourself. There, it, the school is not very well liked in my town. Uh, but anyway, it was very positive for me. And it wasn't until I moved to New York that I began to see what Catholicism, the rest of it, but you know, the vast majority of Catholicism was. And I lapsed out of it completely. And then it wasn't until the state was hired by CBS that I finally started praying again. Because our, our deal with CBS was so fucking iffy. Uh, there were so many things going. We, we managed to get the, the only development executive on our side fired because he said a bunch of racist things to us. It was just, it was, it was very iffy. And I started praying like eight times a day. That book, at that time, it was The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, and, and what happened was, we were fired very unceremoniously, like the day after our show had been on CBS, and it was definitely, everyone in the group could feel it, it was the beginning of the end. So I just felt like, what the fuck was that, God? You know what, what, what? I just felt like betrayed and like like I had made a fool out of myself doing that much prayer. But here I am, a few years later, and I'm in the belly of the whale, and I've just found conversations with God. So what I did is I bought myself a real nice notebook from Barnes and Noble, 
And I turned off all the sounds in the apartment, and I started concentrating and sat down. And in, in a kind of reverent, prayerful way, I wrote down, Dear God, it's time to come back. And I let the pen kind of do a thing or two. And what it wrote was, it's been a while. And then I say, well, the last time I was shattered. And then God says, you will be again. And I'll still be here. You'll experience fulfillment only to the extent that you risk getting crushed again. And you'll only rise to those risks by surfing on love and faith in yourself. And I said, and in you? <laughs> and God replies, either way, the pen is in your hand. Now, when I wrote this, <laughs> I felt a rush of adrenaline. I, I, I was like, I might be onto something here. <laughs> and I, I felt like I was focused like a laser beam on the best stuff I could tap into. You know, like, like the, the deepest wisdom and the fullest love that I had access to. And... In my experience, it seemed to be working at first, especially when God's answers were downright surprising. Uh, I deal on, in like every uh, entry, in every entry I deal with this issue of doubt. And we're talking about that at one point. I'm, I'm especially suspicious that God might give me bad advice. You know, the way that a schizophrenic might get bad advice from the voices in his head. So we're talking about that. And God says, another way to doubt yourself. But look, you speak clearly to me sometimes. I speak clearly to you sometimes. Otherwise, can't we just keep the channels open? And I say, but why can't we be speaking clearly all the time? And God says, because that would be boring. And I say, really? And he says, of course. God and man in constant and complete understanding wouldn't be much of an experience. We need curveballs and interferences. We need a time to refrain from embracing. We need time just to experience it all. But sure enough, looking back on the book now, I can see that some of God's advice like that is wonderful, and some of it is pretty damn terrible. Uh, at one point, he's advising me to look for any job in any way related to arts and entertainment. And he tells me that, you know, my friend Conrad is an entertainment lawyer, and he says, applying for a job at Conrad's entertainment law office would be very practical. And even then, I completely ignored it because that would not be very practical. That would be very catastrophic. And, oh, then there was this thing where God starts insisting that I spend a week uh, writing jokes for Conan O'Brien. 
and sending them in. Now, I had done this about five months previously, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to apply for a job with Conan again? It was only five months ago. That looks a little weird. Um, but I had heard rumors that they were hiring, so I spend the week working on my jokes, create a packet, go to NBC and hand it to them, and they say, oh, we're sorry. We filled that position a week ago. So I wrote to God, I think that night, this notebook is seeming less godlike all the time. To which he replied, ouch. <laughs> now a little later in the book, I'm stressed out about something and God suggests I smoke a bowl, <laughs> rent some movies, or quote, put on some miles. Now, God may be a jazz head. In fact, I prefer to assume he is. But some of the wording of these things was starting to sound an awful lot like plain old me. And now I look back and I can see all sorts of, of things I should have been doing then. All sorts of advice someone should have been giving me. You know, like uh, one of the things I could have been doing then is this show. Um, but I was too busy not doing what I love to do all the time. I was procrastinating. I was distracted by bullshit jobs. I was avoiding. And as long as I was doing that, these little, whatever, dictation sessions were not going to be that much of a help to me. Um, so I gave up on the, on the God Journal. And then during the Bush years, you know, when all of a sudden the Christian right became the voice of America, I kind of like started to disdain anything that was in any way related to God. It's only now when I look back at this journal that I see how kind some of these words I wrote to myself were. Uh, and I get curious about it again when I see that. I see how embarrassing, but also how touching it is that God on these pages calls me Sweet Pea. <laughs> now toward the very end of the journal, I've taken up catering, the worst thing in the world. And God says to me, well, you are not a cater waiter. What are you? And I write, an actor and a writer. And God says, no, no, sweet pea. You forgot the verb. And I say, I am an actor and a writer. And God says, most wonderfully excellent. The finest thing written in this book so far, and I've done most of the talking. There will be other times when you make such statements many times and these are the times i can hardly contain my love for you now i still don't know the extent to which i believe in god i still don't know what the fuzzy line was between me talking and some higher power talking there and i accept the fact that even the best wisdom i have access to is flawed but the best you can do is the best you can do.
And why not always be reaching for it in some way? After five months of writing that journal, I had grown kind of tired of the question and answer format, so I was just you know off on my own again. But at the very end of it, I wrote a horoscope for myself. <laughs> and it says, this week, when you wonder what the best stand to take would be, when you wonder what way of being would be best, take a moment, count to 10, and then ask yourself. Thank you. We like to wrap things up playing this song, Tell Somebody, by Andrew Burns and J. Walter Hawks, because we want you to tell someone else to check us out. Word of mouth means a lot to us. And tell us what you think of the show. Write to Kevin at risk-show.com. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, and Madison Perry. More podcast episodes every other Tuesday. And remember what the Nigerians say about Risk. If you defecate at night... You will see the ghost grasshopper. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch!